I wanted to uh, mention a couple of things. So one is our next baptism here at First Baptist Church will be the weekend after Easter, April 24th. Maybe God is leading you to be baptized. Maybe you've been, never received believer's baptism by immersion. Uh, maybe it's time to do that, join fellowship with First Baptist Church. Or maybe you've, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and followed through in baptism. You know where you are spiritually here and at home, and I want to encourage you. If you want to be baptized on the 24th, let us know. Also, in doing that, we'll be partnering with other Southern Baptist churches across America uh, as we are, we'll be baptizing. Many churches will be baptizing on Sunday the 24th. So be praying about that, and if God is leading you to be baptized, be sure and let me know. Also, as Michael said, this is the season of giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Be praying about what God would have you to give. Remember also to uh, take a look at that link in your worship guide and on our website uh, to pray for and to help Ukraine and maybe sign up for one of the trips. As Pastor Mike mentioned, there's more information through North Carolina Baptist uh, that you can do that and sign up for a trip to go to help in these efforts. If you have questions about that, let us know, and we'll try to help you any way that we can. And one more thing, uh, the mail-out for Easter is getting prepared every year. We do a, a mailing to your neighbors, our neighbors, to invite folks to Easter. If you receive one of those, I know you're already planning to be here. Take that card and use it as an invitation to invite your friend, your neighbor, especially someone outside of your zip code, because we don't send them all the zip codes. We target specific zip codes. So if you get one, you know that it came to your house, to your zip code, use that and, and give it to somebody. Invite them to spend Easter at First Baptist Church and hear the gospel at First Baptist Church. If you have your Bible with you, pick it up and locate with me once again the gospel of Luke, this time chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and hold your place there for just a minute. Luke chapter 7, hold your place there for just a minute. A young lady named Anastasia lives in South Dakota, and uh, she put in an order from Arby's and, uh, on using her DoorDash app, and DoorDash was supposed to bring it to her house. And, and you can follow the DoorDash car on, on the app, and she's following the car, and uh, less than four blocks away, the car stops, stops bringing her her food, just stops dead. And she says she's in her house watching the app and seeing the driver is not going anywhere and baffled by this and starting to get more and more hungry as time goes by. And then suddenly she realized that her ring camera, her video camera, doorbell camera, turned on. And she looked at that app and saw a police officer pulling up outside of her house and coming up the walkway carrying two bags from Arby's and a soft drink. And she opened the door to the officer, and the officer laughed, and he said, we arrested the DoorDash driver, but I wanted to go ahead and bring you your food. <laughs> Isn't it great when people in authority surprise us? Sometimes they're just gracious, aren't they? What if the person, the individual, the God who has all authority just loves to surprise you with his grace. Just loves to show up when you least expect it. To give you something. To bring a smile to your face. To bring joy to your life. To forgive you of your sins. To do great work in your life. Because it's always amazing to us when the one who has the authority to do whatever they want to do chooses to do something for us. 
In this message series, Faces in the Crowd, we're meeting people that have interacted with Jesus. He's changing their lives one life at a time. And as we go along, we learn about the way God works in our lives as well. This morning, we're going to meet a man who is a centurion. And what's, what's interesting and, and unique about this story, among other things, is that he's not actually in the crowd. In fact, he's not even physically with Jesus, physically present. And yet he becomes the point of conversation. He becomes the point of teaching in which we learn in this story what God wants to teach us about amazing faith, about faith that gets God's attention. And what we'll also learn is that faith that's so amazing, so remarkable, is in fact not all that amazing at all. It's faith that you and I can exercise as we go along because it's faith in God's authority to exercise his power however he desires. Before we read the story in Luke chapter 7, uh, the backdrop for, it, for this coming out of Luke chapter 6 is that Jesus has spent a great deal of time teaching the people. Uh, Luke chapter 6 is uh, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, much of it's the same teaching. It's just a reminder that uh, Jesus would repeat his teaching as uh, you and I do, the people of the ancient world, often learned best by repetition. So while in Matthew he sits down on a hill and he teaches from the mount, in the Gospel of Luke he walks along. And so some scholars call it the Sermon on the Plain as he's walking along and teaching his disciples many of the same truths we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's coming out of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 uh, that we read the story we're about to read and that we're told by Luke that he's finishing up this teaching. So look there with me in Luke chapter 7 starting at verse 1. And this is what the Bible says. When he had concluded, concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to, about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, that is to Jesus, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man, am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. The pivot point of this story is the only thing Jesus says in the whole story. Did you notice that? He doesn't even speak until we get to verse 9. And when he hears what the centurion says, he turns to the crowd. It's a, the turn is for dramatic effect. It's to get your attention and say, Jesus is about to say something important. He turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, I've not found so great faith even in Israel, even among the people of God. This faith is amazing. This faith is amazing. What makes this faith so amazing? Well, that's what we're going to ask and answer this morning. But first, let's learn a little bit about this face in the crowd, this centurion himself. 
and why he matters to the story. And that's one of the reasons his faith is so amazing or why Jesus declares that it's amazing. A centurion in the Roman army was a commander of 100 men. Now, in reality, it was more like 80 men, but they were so named because the Roman army was divided up among men under a centurion, which in turn were grouped by 500s, which in turn were grouped by the 10,000s. And centurions were handpicked by their superiors. And there were two things that superiors looked for when they picked a centurion. The first was integrity. They had to be men of character, of honesty. This was not required of other officers in the Roman army. You see that in, in Pontius Pilate. He, he's hardly a man of integrity. But for a centurion, they had to be a man of, of integrity because they had to be respected. And secondly, they had to be brave. They had to be men of courage. As a result, centurions were highly regarded throughout the Roman army. Uh, the centurion and his soldiers were boots on the ground in any battle. In fact, uh, when Roman legions went to war, basically it was the centurions bringing their armies to the batter, battlefield. The, man, the centurion of the highest rank, who was called Primus, was the soldier in charge at the battle. You see, centurions knew how to fight, and they were men of bra they were brave, and they could engage in a moment's notice for the Roman army. They had integrity, they had loyalty, they had honesty, they were respected, and they were brave. If you're very familiar with your New Testament, you'll know why. They're, each time a centurion is mentioned throughout the whole New Testament, it's always in a favorable light. Not one time is a centurion mentioned in a negative way in the New Testament. And that was not just because the New Testament writers favored them. It was because they were men of integrity. They were brave. They were create, courageous. And they were honest. Something else we notice about him is that he lives in Capernaum. And you remember from last week, Jesus has made Capernaum home now uh, since he was ejected from Nazareth for simply teaching the truth of himself as the Messiah. He went to Capernaum. He's made that his home. That's where Peter and Andrew already lived. So Jesus has been serving in Capernaum. He's been teaching in Capernaum. He's been healing in Capernaum. So when the centurion has a need for someone to come, someone to, to, to heal his servant, he's already heard about Jesus. He knows about the power of God in Jesus, and he reaches out to Jesus. And something else we notice about the Capernaum is he, about the centurion is that he is favorable to the one true God. The Romans were notoriously polytheistic. They worshipped every conceivable God you could imagine. But sometimes they came along and they learned about the Jewish God, the one true God, and they became what the Jews called God-fearers. They were Gentiles, non-Jews, who came to believe that the God of the Jews was the one true God. It's not stated in this story that that's who he is, and that's what his belief was, but we can take that from the fact that he's, he's learned about Jesus, he's paying attention to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to come and to heal his servant. This man is a Gentile, not a Jew, and yet he is favored in Capernaum. He's respected. He's well-known even among the Jews. And when the time comes that he has a need to experience the power of God on behalf of a servant, he calls Jesus. He reaches out to Jesus. 
And Jesus' response to what the centurion says is that this faith is amazing. This faith is amazing. Well, what makes it so amazing? What makes it stand out? And what can we learn about our own faith in God through this? That's why God's preserved this story for us. So that we will learn about faith that gets God's attention. Faith that is amazing. And what we'll learn along the way is that, in fact, it's faith that, that any of us can exercise and apply. It's faith in the authority of God. Faith that God will always do what's right all the time for anyone. Go back to the story with me this morning. And I want us to look at some characteristics of this centurion's amazing faith that elicits that response from Jesus. And learn about the authority of God in Jesus Christ and how he applies that to your life. Look at this with me. First of all, what makes this faith amazing? Well, this faith, this centurion, approaches God with humility. He approaches God with humility. He understands where he stands in relation to Jesus Christ, whom he treats as the creator. He treats Christ as the creator. If you notice when we read the story, how many times uh, and how pivotal the story, the terminology of worth and value is in the story. Uh, He sends word to the Jewish leaders to mediate a a conversation with Jesus. And and the Jewish leaders, he tells the Jewish leaders that he has a valued servant, a servant who is highly valued, has become sick, is close to death. The servants, excuse me, the elders go and they tell Jesus to respond to his request because he is worthy. Then he turns around and sends word back to Jesus, no, don't come, I'm not worthy And I didn't deem myself worthy enough to come to you. What's going on? Well, pay attention to this. In the first instance, when uh, the centurion himself says, and we learn from Luke, that he has a servant who is highly valued, the term translated highly valued uh, refers to someone who is precious to him. It was common in the ancient world, especially with men of, of wealth, as a centurion would have been a man of wealth, it was common in a larger household with lots of servants for there to be a servant who was head of the household and who was even a friend of the master of the house. And that's the image we have here. This is a servant that this centurion favors. They're close. They have a relationship. He is precious, highly valued and highly regarded to the centurion. But the point is that he's not valued because of what he does. He's valued because of who he is. He is a person of value to the centurion and a person in his household. Then the Jewish elders come along, Jewish leaders, and they want to curry favor with the centurion. They want Jesus to do what they want him to do for the centurion. And here's their reasoning. He is worthy Because he has contributed, he's a benefactor to our synagogue. He built it or helped build it. In other words, he gave money to build the synagogue there in Capernaum. And that is important. It's remarkable. And it's certainly commendable that the centurion did that. But notice their reasoning. Their their interest is self-interest. Their interest is Jesus, he is valuable because of what he does. Not for who he is but for what he does, what he can contribute to us. And we want to keep getting what he can contribute to us. That's his value to us. That's why he is worthy of God responding. Hmm. One is precious, not for what he does, but for 
who he is. The other is worthy for what he does, not for who he is. And they want Jesus to pay special attention, uh, to, to give special favor to the centurion because of what he gives, what he contributes to their town, to their religion, to their synagogue, because of what they can get from him. It's pure self-interest. Now, before we're too hard on the, the Jewish leaders there, the elders, let's pause and remember that sometimes that same self-interest raises its ugly head in churches, sometimes in our church, sometimes in our lives. We say, God, I deserve this because I've been giving my tithe, because I've worked so hard, because I've contributed so much. Oh, and I've heard well-meaning Christians for years say things like, I give a lot to that church. Or so-and-so gave a lot to that church. They, they deserve better. Now, what are we doing? Well, we're hinging our value, our worth, on what we can do for the church or for someone else. But the centurion's response is this. No, no, no. I am not worthy to come to you, Jesus, or for you to come to my house. The word there translated worthy is different from the other two. It means I'm not qualified or sufficient. God, I lack in myself. I know who I am. And no matter what medals are on my uniform, no matter what commendations I have, no matter how much money I have in the bank, I am not worthy to be in the presence of God. We assign value all, all kinds of ways, don't we? We assign value to one another. We assign objects value in, in all kinds of ways. Like the gentleman who bought at auction the football that was supposed to be Tom Brady's last touchdown pass. The anonymous bidder paid $518,600 for the football. And hours after his bid went through, Tom Brady said, just kidding. I'm not retiring. I'm coming back. And just like that, the football just became another football. Just happened to be $518,000 football, but just like that, value, gone. We kind of have a hard time understanding how to assign value, don't we? But here's the thing, and this is what the centurion is going to demonstrate. This is what he understands. His value is based purely on the fact that God knows him, loves him, and God will do the right thing. God, he treats Jesus as his creator, as God his creator. Even though the Jewish leaders don't yet get that, the centurion gets it, that Jesus Christ values the centurion and will make the right decision for no other reason than he is God. You know why God values you? You know why God loves you? You know why God answers your prayers? You know why God always does what's best for you? Because he created you. He loves you because he created you. He answers your prayer and interacts with your faith because he loves you. You're human, you're here, and you belong to him. That's why he loves you. Now, we learn in Scripture that, that God answers the prayers of believers in Christ. But he loves all people as his creation. But when people in Christ come to him, the Bible teaches he actually favors your prayers. 
especially when you begin with humility. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You know who I am. And no earthly commendation, no earthly medal, no earthly rank, no earthly contribution is going to change who I am before Christ because Jesus already did that. Through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I have an audience with God and for no other reason than that. Second, the, the, the centurion's amazing faith. It's shown because he acknowledges God's impartiality. He approaches God with humility, and he acknowledges God's impartiality. It's embedded in the story more than it's stated that the centurion of everyone else there understands that God treats faith the same way. And it doesn't matter his rank or his standing or whether he's a Jew or he's a Gentile. What matters is that he believes in the authority of God to apply, that God will apply his power where God deems it right. God will always do the right thing. Uh, in this story, the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, now in Capernaum, rises heads and shoulders above the Jewish leaders and the Gentile centurion of rank. He, he's the one in charge. And it acknowledges not only his impartiality toward everyone, it acknowledges his sovereignty and how God applies his power. Because the centurion knows, and Jesus teaches, that he responds to every human being according to God's authority, according to what God says is best. And you can't buy Jesus' favor. You can't contribute enough to be more loved by him. He loves you because he loves you. And that's it. There's a, a scenario here that, that plays out. Remember, the, the centurion, he never comes. He said, I'm not worthy to come to you. And it's why I didn't think you were worthy to come to me. He says that toward the close. But watch this. The servant is sick and near death. And he sends the Jewish elders to get Jesus. And the Jewish elders wanted to, to, to curry favor with him. They go get Jesus because that's who he wanted. And by the way, it's not the job of Pharisees or scribes or Jewish religious teachers to heal. That's not their job. And they know that. But we have a healer in our midst. We have Jesus walking around. They go get Jesus. Now, because of their self-interest, evidently they didn't communicate the message the same way the centurion did. Their self-interest said, you need to do this for him. You need to go to his house. You need to heal this servant because we want him to keep contributing to our culture, our community, and our society. And evidently, the word got to the centurion that Jesus was on his way. So the centurion, look at this, sent friends, not any more Jewish leaders, not any more Jewish elders, not anybody with self-interest. He sent people with his interest in mind, people who understood his heart. He sent them to Jesus and said, no, 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 no. You have misunderstood. I don't expect you to come to my home. I'm not worthy of that. You just do what you think is best from wherever you are. And that's what I'll trust you for. That's what I'll trust you for. In all of this, Jesus is crossing racial barriers. He's crossing social barriers. He's crossing religious barriers. He's just doing Jesus. But when that centurion sends word and says, I'm not worthy, that's when it triggers the grand declaration that we see and we see the last characteristic of that amazing faith. He appeals to God's authority. He approaches him in humility, acknowledges his impartiality, but this faith appeals to God's 
authority. Typically, when we pray, when we ask God in faith to move on our behalf, perfectly legitimate prayer, but what we're thinking about is God's power, not his authority. But the centurion knows the difference, and here's what he knows. He knows that authority can exercise power, but power does not always have authority. Jesus has authority and can exercise power however he likes. That's the difference. That's what he means when he says, I'm under soldier's command, and I have soldiers under my command. And soldiers under my command, I tell them to go, and they go. I tell them to come, and they come. And I have servants in my household, I tell them do this, do that, and they do it. I too am a man under authority. So Jesus, I know all you need to do is exercise your authority. I don't even have to be in your presence. You don't have to be in the presence of the servant to do it. You just need to decide what's right and exercise your authority and the power of God on that servant, if that's what you choose to do. This is what Jesus says is amazing. Because just like us, most of the Jews think of God as a God of power, not of a God of authority, and don't realize that power doesn't always have authority, but authority always has power. Here's what I mean. Any sport with a team and a coach, think about it, basketball, soccer, football, who has all the power on the field? The team does. They have collective power. The problem is they don't know how or where to exercise that power without one person in authority telling them how to do it. The coach has the authority. And because the coach has the authority, he also has the power. He has the power to say come, the power to go, the power to change players, the power to add, the power to subtract. He makes the decisions and then he exercises the power and that's how the team knows what to do. That's what this centurion is talking about. Military works the same way. Someone in, power, someone in authority knows how to best exercise power. Now what's extraordinary about his statement to Jesus is that by affirming authority, the authority of God in Jesus Christ, and that authority means he will exercise power however God decides. What he's doing is having the faith to yield up to Christ whatever decision God decides. That's what authority is. He's saying, Jesus, you have the authority to do whatever you want to do. And here it is, and I'll accept whatever you choose to do. You have the authority to exercise God's power from wherever you are for whomever you choose, in whatever way you desire, and I will accept your decision. When was the last time you prayed that way? Jesus, you have absolute authority. Your power is not in question. Your power is not in question. I believe, Christ, you have the absolute power to do whatever you desire, and you have the authority to make the decision. When was the last time you prayed that way? That's what triggers Jesus' grand declaration. And the only way the centurion can grasp it so much better than the Jews who circulate around Jesus in the crowd that day and the Jews in the, the Jewish leaders there, the, the reason he grasped it is because he understands Jesus Christ is the creator of him and that servant. The creator has all authority to exercise power however he desires in whatever way he wants and for whomever he wants. And the centurion says, you don't even have to come to my house. Just say the word. You say the word from wherever you are. 
exercise that authority and apply that power. I trust you that much, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus, to do the right thing no matter what. And from wherever you are, to do the right thing no matter what. Because you have the authority to do that. You remember the story in Matthew chapter 8. Disciples are in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and a storm sweeps down in uh, out of the hills and, and across the lake. And the wind presses them and the, and the rain becomes torrential and the waves are rising and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And they wake him up and they're frantic. Don't you know we're going to die? Why don't you do something about it? So he does. He stands up in the boat. He tells the wind and the waves to be still. Peace, be still. And immediately the Bible says just like that. Everything calmed down. Sun came out. Birds started chirping. And he looks at the disciples and he says, oh, you have little faith. And then the disciples quietly say to one another, get this, who is this man who can command the wind and the waves? And they listened. They hadn't gotten it yet. They will. They haven't gotten it yet. Who is this man? He is God, your creator in human flesh. And he not only has the power to do what he wants to do, he has the authority to exercise that power in whatever way he desires. You want to bolster your faith? You want to see God do great things in your life? Always pray this way. You have the authority, God, to exercise your power however you want to. And I trust you. I trust you, God, to do what's best. I trust you, God, to do the right thing. I trust you, God, to use your power, your way in my life. I trust you completely. And I give you that trust, God. I trust your authority over my life. Hey, if you're a Christian in here, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, you believed that he had the power from the blood of, on the cross, from his shed blood on the cross, he has the power to forgive you of your sins, from the resurrection, the power to give you eternal life. But did you know he has the authority to be Lord of your life as well? Because when you trusted him as your Savior, you were acknowledging his authority as your Lord, and you were calling out to him as your creator. We see in our own world the abuse of authority and power. Putin is doing it right now. Putin has authority over his armies. And he's using that authority to exercise power in an evil, illegitimate, hostile way. Killing innocent people. Attacking a nation that did him no harm. Overrunning that nation and killing people, children, along the way. Human beings, influenced by Satan, frequently will use our authority in ways that are evil. God always uses his authority and exercises his power in loving and righteous ways toward you. God always knows what's best for you. That's why this amazing faith is not always that amazing, really. It's simply saying, God, I trust you completely and absolutely. I believe you have the authority to do whatever you want to do, the power to exercise it, and you will always do what's best for me, for my family, for my community. God, I trust you that much. Can you say that to him today? Can you say, God, I trust you that much? Whatever you've been praying about, whatever you've been lifting up to him, I know you trust him. I know you believe him. That's why you're praying in faith. 
But instead of asking for his power, trust his authority to exercise that power in whatever way he desires, whenever he desires, however he desires, for whomever he desires. And you'll watch him work. You'll see him work in great ways. Believers, I'm going to pray for you. I'll pray for all of us this morning. We will yield to the authority of God in Jesus Christ, our creator, and we'll see his power exercised in the ways he chooses to. And we'll yield that to him. Whatever presses you that you're praying about, lift that up to him while I'm praying and know that God always does what's best for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we pause in this moment, God, we trust you. We believe you, God, and and we give to you what worries us, what concerns us. We give to you, God, our heartaches and our cares. We give to you, God, all these prayers that we've been praying, Father, the people we're worried about, our finances, our decisions, sickness, heartache, relationships, whatever it is, God, we give that to you. And God, we trust you. We believe you, God. You not only have the power to do what we're asking you to do and what do you choose to do. God, you have the authority to do the right thing and to exercise that power in keeping with your righteousness and your perfect will. So that's what we ask today. And I pray, God, for each one here that we would, we would yield that up to you. We would believe you, God, and your authority in our lives. And God, we would yield to your lordship in our lives as well. We believe you, God, that you, you are our creator. You're Lord of our lives. Guide us, bless us, be with us. Help us, Father, through trying times. And we yield, Father, our self-interest to you. We ask your forgiveness for that, God. Help us, God, to trust you in all these things. I pray for those in this room or at home, God, that need Christ as their Savior. And I pray today, Father, would be the day they yield to you. They realize that you are Lord. You are Creator. You're the one that loves them. And that Christ died on the cross for them, God. So whether they're in this room or at home, Father, I pray they would pray this prayer of faith to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I can't save myself. And I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross for me and you're alive today. In faith, Jesus, I ask you come into my heart and my life. Forgive me of my sins. And I yield my life to you and your Lordship today. And Father, for all of us, I pray, God, that you would lift the burdens, the the struggles we have, God. You would take those off of our shoulders. God, strengthen our faith today. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' precious name.